Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I'm Avi Havivi, Temple Beth Am. It's December 15th and this is a Green Team talk. And our speaker this evening is Yeye Lobet, although if you search her online formally, her byline is um, Ingrid Lobet. I didn't ask her how she got to be called Yeye. I'm sure there's a story there. Anyway, um, Ingrid slash Yeye is a freelance journalist working on issues of climate, energy, and environmental justice. She's uh, worked in public radio and um, now mostly uh, uh, does stories in print and web format. She has a master's of science degree in climate science from Johns Hopkins, and uh, she's an Angelina at this point in her life, although not from her origins. Uh, she's a member of ICAR, and um, this is really the first of kind of two parts is how I envision it. Um, we're going to try to have a session in January about our local neighborhood oil well in at Pico and Doheny. Um, which some people know a lot about and other people know nothing about. It's like, what's in that block of Pico and Doheny that you can't see anything, but it's just covered by nice walls. The answer is an oil well um, and their neighborhood efforts to uh, work. I'll say work on that oil well. Um, Tonight is not going to be that talk. So it's not an advocacy talk. Tonight is really going to be informative. Uh, I heard um, Yeye speak and I learned a lot about stuff that I didn't know anything about, about, why, how does that oil well get to be there? And why are there all these oil fields and oil wells still on the way up uh, La Cienega coming from the airport to our neighborhood? Uh, how much money is involved in them? Um, are they good for our economy and bad for the environment or what? So Ingrid's been working on these issues um, as a journalist for years. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me to talk with you about the oil industry in Los Angeles. Can you hear me all okay? Great. And um, in California more broadly and um, the relationship between that and climate and efforts to um, eventually probably phase out oil production um, here. Um, we chose this date far in advance and did not know that I would have 15 NCAA Division Three Ultimate Frisbee players in my house, but they're promising to be quiet. Um, and so far they're being quiet, but if you hear noise, just let me know and, um, and I'll try and get things quieted down. Um, I have uh, quite a few slides and I have maps. They have some detail on them. So you might want to maximize your screen so that you're um, able to see the detail on that. And um Oil production in Los Angeles goes back a more. Oh, well, let me let me share screen so you can see this first. Um, I'm no expert in this, but I have been told that Edward Doheny was somebody who was working in the California. He was, he was looking for gold, like a lot of people. And when he didn't try that, he didn't find that. He ended up drilling the first oil well in Southern California in 1882, um, beginning an oil rush in what became known as the Los Angeles City Oil Field. And um, those are all derricks. They're also called rigs. That is what a derrick is. Sometimes people will call other things a derrick, but they aren't. This is what a derrick is. And um, they're used, they, they look like that because they're used to support the drill bit that makes the hole um, because an oil well is a hole. And that's something that I've realized um, in California that's really different from Texas is some people don't have a visual image of what a well, an oil well is. It's a hole. And the height of that rig is used to assemble and force the drill pipe down the hole. And you can see that one reaches down to where it says oil. That's when they stop drilling is when they reach the bottom of the reservoir that they're looking for. And I've had engineers tell me that when oil drilling started in Los Angeles, the railroad was not connected to Southern California. So you couldn't get steel here. Um, so some wells have no casing here at all. And some they used board out redwood trees. And some of those are still in the ground in downtown LA. Um, and there are still about 3000 wells just in that Los Angeles city oil field. Um, I understand. Um, some people made a lot of money doing that, which caused a lot more people to start looking for oil in other places like Signal Hill. Uh, in Long Beach. And this one here is, is labeled 
Venice Beach, but I think it's actually Playa Beach um, because there is an oil field under Playa del Rey, as you might, you may know more about this already than I do, but there's, there is an oil field under Playa del Rey. That's why we have a gas storage field there. It's because it used to have oil in it. And I think it's really interesting that pumping oil out of the ground here has actually been controversial going back a hundred years. In the 1920s, um, there was opposition to drilling in Long Beach proper because, you know, operators occasionally would lose control of a well and it would send oil shooting into the sky and falling down onto people and their property and it would mess up people's vacations and it was bad for the tourism industry, although it was good for other industries. So, um, yeah, there have been people who didn't like it um, since the 1920s. Um, okay, so that well hole or well bore, it doesn't go, um, it doesn't have to go straight down. It can go diagonally. And more recently, it can even go directly horizontally. Um, and some of you may know that if it goes diagonally or horizontally through property where you own the mineral rights, then you may be getting a check. And according to Era Energy, which is one of the biggest oil companies in California, there are 600,000 Californians who get oil or gas royalty checks. Um, so I think some people in this congregation live um, near a well site um, that Avi was talking about at Pico and Doheny, um, near a Derrick Tower that has was built to resemble a synagogue. And that, I think that was a first. Um so this is the official oil and gas well map of the state of California, and it's available to anyone who wants to go there. You can see where all the wells are. And that agency is now called CalGEM for the California Geologic Energy Management Division. It used to have a name that referred more directly to oil and gas, but uh, California is plowing forward into the future and gave their agency a more progressive name. Um, and it maintains records on just about every single oil and gas well in the state. And an interesting thing about gas wells is that since they are drilled by engineers and since engineers are by their training very meticulous, um, for many wells, there are really detailed wells. So if we zoom in, this is the one that's near Doheny. And you can see if you zoom in, you can see all the wells that are there and they're numbered. Everyone has every well in California is supposed to have an official well number. And on this map, the um, purple ones are the ones that are idle, um, which is not a permanent condition. It just means we're not pumping oil out of it anymore. And it's not our intention to be pumping oil out of it today or tomorrow. The green ones are actively having oil pumped out of them and Interestingly, also is the orange ones are new ones. Um, I don't know if you can see this is orange, but if you click on it, I was curious that they would be drilling a new one right there. But the status says that it's canceled. So maybe they had intended to drill a new one. Um, and perhaps I'm just speculating here. I want to be clear about that. It may be a sign of the times that something that they intended to have as a new well there has been canceled. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about recent changes that have really uh, are really very powerful signals about the oil and gas um, industry here. So how intense is that drill site, that um, well site with 40 wells? Well, if we zoom out, we can get an idea. You can see there was a lot of stuff drilled around. This is Century City right here. Um, you can see over here. I'm not sure what field this is, but it's mostly all idle, not, not, and not too many, and, and, and plugged. The gray ones are permanently plugged. They have had... Um, so much concrete poured down to them that they will not uh, never produce again. Um, and if you if you zoom out even farther, you can see all the wells in the area. And that that now when you when you zoom out that much, this this Beverly Hills site looks small, like it doesn't really count in the big scheme of things. But when you drill when you uh, zoom in on it, you can see there's actually 40 wells there, which is not not insignificant. Um, okay. So oil has brought a lot of wealth and it's brought a lot of employment, although that employment is definitely waning and it's way less um, than employment in solar and wind now um, in California. Um, and with the wells came refineries because you have to turn the crude oil into gasoline. And Los Angeles, it, this gets much less ink than the wells do, but Los Angeles is a refining powerhouse. And um, 
I know some people who are vegetarian feel like if you're going to eat meat, you should, you know, see where it comes from and be conversant in that. And likewise, some people who work on oil issues in this area feel like if you're going to drive a car that takes gasoline, you should know what a refinery looks like. And we have like six or seven of them here. Um, one way you can do that is to take the 405 freeway, take the Wilmington Avenue exit, uh, go south and make a left turn on Sepulveda. If you want to find them on, on a satellite map, you can look for these areas that have all these tanks. This is what's known as a tank farm. And where you have a tank farm, you usually have a refinery. And there's a refinery right here in Carson. And I think there's another one right here. Um, most of the refineries here in LA are in Wilmington or Carson, which borders Wilmington. But you guys probably know that there's a very large refinery also in Torrance, um, which has its own group that uh, works just on clean air issues around that. Um, let's see here. People who live near the refineries will tell you that there's really good work there. There are also many emissions and there are accidents at refineries. Um, last year, there was an accident um, at one of the Carson refineries. And I believe that that's still, you know, I'm not sure if they've, they've issued the final report on what that was, but in, I noticed in, in the chat for, um, that's like, oh, you can see that's SkyMap 7 that, that shot that. In the, in the comments on that, you know, you had people who live near there saying, you know, this, this wasn't that uncommon. Um, and in September of this year, there was a small earthquake. Wait just a second. I've lost control of my cursor here. There was a small earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a lot of activity at the refineries called flaring. Um, and flaring is uh, the, the refineries will tell you that it is a safety measure because, you know, when you ha if you send gases up the stack and you burn them off, then they cannot explode elsewhere in the refinery. That's all true. Um, but people who live nearby will tell you that flaring, um, while it may be routine and it may be a safety measure, it is not necessarily a benign activity because obviously you're combusting a bunch of stuff and that smoke is going somewhere. And so refineries are a very big um, center of concern for environmental um, justice organizations. Um, but probably what made Avi invite me here tonight is related to the role of oil in climate change. Um, the atmosphere that we were given had a certain amount of carbon dioxide in it. It had about 280 parts per million. And as a result of natural processes, um, often in an annual process of growth and absorption, uh, growth and absorption and death and decay. And that gave us what some people called a Goldilocks planet that was not too hot and not too cold. Um, and human civilization pretty much developed with that level of carbon dioxide, more or less. Um, but burning fossil fuels like we're seeing here has raised that concentration of CO2 in the air to now over 400 parts per million, um, thanks largely to the fact that we are unburying deep stores of carbon that never would have been part of that annual um, carbon cycle of increase and de a mild increase and decrease. Um, in fact, if you look at if you look at graphs of CO2, um, they go like this in an annual cycle, but within a very narrow band. And now, you know, because of, of the fossil fuels that we have brought up that had been stored for millions of years, um, you know, we've really dramatically disturbed that concentration. And the use of fossil fuels needs to ramp down really steeply to zero to preserve a chance of a recognizable climate, according to the IPCC, as you probably know very well. And what we have seen with those IPCC reports is that they are extremely conservative and real life measurements keep outpacing the um projections of the IPCC because it's a group of scientists and they all have to sign off on it. They all have to come to agreement. And by their training, they tend to be rather cautious. So we get these annual, these reports every four years, and then we measure the changes in the atmosphere and they end up being greater often than what was in the IPCC reports. And in Los Angeles, environmental justice organizations like Communities for a Better Environment and many others have been very well organized for since the early 2000s, and they have been working to reduce and clean up fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, but recently, those groups that have been 
doing that for a long time have been joined by other groups like housing activists and um, a, a group called People Not Pulsos, which means People Not Wells, and, or other people who are connecting the dots on climate change um, in wealthier communities and religious congregations. And they have made remarkable change in a very brief period of time. Um, about 90 days ago, the county board of supervisors did something that really surprised me. It voted to begin phasing out wells in unincorporated parts of the county. Um, and my understanding is that that means that there will be no new wells drilled in the unincorporated parts of the county. And they also declared oil drilling to be an incompatible use, land use, which I think gives them a grounding in law to begin sh contemplating shutting down production in existing wells. And I think that's a very big distinction between saying you can't drill something new versus you can't use something that you have that's operating. So I didn't do any original reporting on that, but I did do some mapping to see, well, what are the unincorporated parts of Los Angeles County um, that, uh, let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger, where you, that might be affected by this move. Uh, let me see if I can move you guys so that I can have access to my. So the light blue here is the unincorporated county. And um, the dark red are active oil fields. We have other oil fields in L.A. County, but they're not necessarily still producing oil. So is there any place on here that anyone would like me to zoom into? The one off the one off um, La Cienega by Baldwin Hills. The OK, I coming think that's the, the Inglewood oil field airport. right here. Uh -huh. Do I have it on the screen? Yep. Yeah. I'm going to show you another map of our oil fields later on, but this one I only made to see what was like the jurisdictional overlap. Sorry, so you said the red is unincorporated, and the red no. is the active oil fields, and then blue is unincorporated. Okay. Uh huh. Okay, so it affects okay. the marina. It affects that um, La Cienega corridor. And I actually, if I can find the chat, maybe when I stop. Um, sharing i get access to the chat because i'm not seeing where i get it right now oh yeah there i have the chat okay i'm going to put the link for this in the chat and that way you can look at it at your leisure if you want okay um then in mid-october um governor gavin newsom also surprised a lot of us when he um did what the community activists have actually been working for for years um but and and said that new wells have to be pretty far away from houses and schools, like more than a half a mile, 3,200 feet. And before that, a lot of people had been talking about, can we get a 500 foot setback and can they get a 1000 foot setback? And those efforts had failed. And then he announced it's going to be 3,200 feet. So, um, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Um and now people are talking about the city acting and if and when the city acts that, you know, that will be an even bigger deal. And that's because that's where the, you know, a lot of oil is coming from the Wilmington and Long Beach area. So you can see that even in the grand scheme of things um, with California, that that uh, a lot of oil is coming out of the ground near um, near a Long Beach and Wilmington and. Um, but apparently um, the city is actually considering limiting or phasing out oil production in the city of Los Angeles. Um, nine of the 15 Los Angeles City Council members publicly expressed support for the county phase out. And the city, the city attorney has said that the city does have that authority. I think at ECAR, someone from the Green Action said they were involved in, you know, meetings with city council members. Um, now, the. Energy companies argue that any constriction of oil production in California will only lead to importing uh, more oil. So this is where California, the oil, this is where the oil that comes into California refineries uh, came from in 2019. Um, I always thought when I heard, you know, if you just shut it down in one place, it will come from somewhere else. I thought that was true. Uh, that seemed true. But um, apparently there are people who say that it is not true. Um, 
the Stockholm Environment uh, Institute, which is scholarly, everybody's got a PhD, I think there, says um, leaving oil in the ground in one place is a way to reduce global oil consumption. Um, the person who leads the climate policy program there says, in the big picture, it is just not true that if you leave some oil undeveloped, it will be substituted for uh, one for one with someone else's oil. Um, so I'll just wrap up um, this part uh, with me doing all the talking by saying um, something you probably already know, which is that we're in a massive energy transition. Uh, the entire vehicle fleet is turning over to electricity. We don't know how fast. A few people, are, a few companies are still betting on hydrogen, but that ultimately is an electricity process also. Um, the entire electrical system that delivers electricity to our lights and plugs is transitioning away from coal and we'll have to transition off um, natural, aka fossil gas. Um, and that transi transition is underway. Um, young people who are just entering the workforce are facing an unprecedented array of possibilities to pursue their careers and simultaneously address the climate um, crisis. And um, yeah, uh, I'm happy to take uh, any of your questions or revisit any of those slides that um, you'd like any more detail on. Mm -hmm. I have Can a question. So big yeah. picture in terms of energy needs, and, you know, we might all use our air conditioners less and have some modest energy reduction, energy use reduction, but I think how much that's going to be is pretty limited. Um, and, and you didn't talk about this because it's not your topic, but um, is there really capacity for things like um, solar and wind to substitute, or is that unrealistic? Uh, does it need to be more nuclear powered? Does there need to be some scientific breakthrough for some energy source that we don't really have access to yet? So I'm asking kind of a big picture question. Yeah, all, no, that's totally the, fine we'll to have, ask we'll that. We'll have Thank electric you. cars and electric this and electric that. And, and where's all that electricity going to come from? What's the vision well, of that? We are Let's say 50 years down the line. I don't think anybody wants to look at 50 years down the line because there is so much engineering breakthrough happening now. I mean, they do uh, try to project how much uh, what the demand is going to be. Um, and then they try to and we're trying to get to zero carbon as fast as possible, zero, zero carbon emissions. And in fact, I believe that's the law or at least the edict from the governor in this state. Um, but so. Uh, I hear your question as being about electricity, um, not transportation, but they are related. And so we have already um, many of the utilities have eliminated the coal uh, fired power that they were purchasing from out of state. We mostly weren't creating that dirtiest electricity in our state, but we definitely were importing it from the Southwest, Arizona and New Mexico. Um, and I believe I believe LADWP is the one that has dramatically reduced its, but I think the state of California is still getting some. They're trying to replace that as fast as possible with a build out of mm -hmm. solar and a build out uh, also of we're now we're starting to build out offshore wind, which has mm -hmm. some potential in California. California, where offshore wind gets built is in part a function of where you have brisk wind blowing. And we have maps of the world and the United States that show where the faster wind is. And for those of you who remember your math formulas at all, the reason why it really matters how fast the wind is blowing is because the power that you can extract from a column of of air that a, a turbine is pulling in is related to the cube of the wind speed. So the power increases really fast with a small increase in wind speed. And that's a new thing that's happening off the Northern California coast where we have our faster wind speeds. And the reason why our wind turbines have can now produce a hundred times more power than what those early dinky ones from the 1980s in Altamont and Tehachapi could produce is because they have gotten higher and they can reach these um, faster uh, I mean, they're also just engineered a lot better. Those were basically experimental in the 1980s. And, and now it's a whole huge industry. Um, but 
So you can replace a lot of it with the technology we have. The biggest question in electricity is how do you take um, the excess? We now have tons of electric, excess electricity on our grid at certain hours, and we don't have enough electricity on our grid at other hours. So how can you store what is great excess and even being turned off during um, afternoons? when the demand is not that high, but we have huge production and just shift it so that we can use it overnight. And ideally we would like to be able to have more flexibility where we can not only use it overnight, but we can use it the next day if it's super overcast or whenever we really want to. And right now um, we're building out huge um, arrays of lithium battery packs right on the same sites as our solar arrays for exactly that reason. So that the solar collectors can feed directly into the batteries and that extends the functioning hours of the solar array from being not just from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., but 9 a.m. to maybe 9 p.m. But that's still not what we need. We still need more breakthroughs. And, you know, that is like some of the hottest work in university engineering departments right now. And there are probably 20 experimental battery chemistries to create that longer term storage. And there's all these startups that are seeking, you know, the capital that they need to take their um, project from either the lab to a pilot or from a pilot to a real world demonstration project. And that is one of the priorities of the state of California. And now the Biden administration department of energy is to get those hundreds of millions of dollars out the door so that anybody who's got one of those promising ideas is not held back by a lack of funding. Long answer, but you had, you asked a good question. Yes. Um, Wait, I can't hear you. Alan, then Miriam. Yeah. So um, I'm curious if there's uh, you talked about um, political action around um, stopping drilling or, or stopping the pumping within the state, within the county, within the city. Um, I'm curious if there's been much discussion within those um, deliberations around kind of the near term economic impact that it creates. So you had mentioned. So if you. Um, you know, a barrel of oil left in the ground doesn't necessarily get replaced. But the reason for that is that the barrel of oil left in the ground ends up um, reducing supply and therefore increasing price. And so there's some sort of price elasticity. And so consumption goes down a little bit, but there's definitely an economic cost associated associated with it. And, and you know, the citizens end up suffering a little bit from an economic standpoint. And so I'm curious if that's really a significant factor within these deliberations or if people are just really kind of we have to go green we have to you know cut co2 and we'll just do it however um we need to i think uh, yeah that's a great question i I think that that actually has been a very serious um i'm not a sacramento reporter so i don't sit in on all those hearings or hear the policy deliberations of um the air resources board or the different committees but i think that that's probably why it has taken this long. If you're going to hear later from an activist, they're going to tell you that they have been trying to do this for so many years. And in the meantime, the um, egregiousness of actual felt climate change has gotten so much more acute. But the reason why it has taken this long is because um, there can be an economic effect. Now, again, the different administrations and many people are working as hard as they can to drive down the cost of batteries so that there's absolute parity. Uh, with between electric cars, you don't have to pay any premium for an electric car. There are also, you know, there's also rebates for that same reason to make it so because it costs less over time um, to have an electric car there, but there has been an upfront cost, but they're trying to eliminate it. So there's no upfront cost. And so then people can switch. And also so that people who would not yet be in a position to even buy a new car are able to switch just like they tried, um, have been trying for 30 years to make the, you, the California fleet cleaner with internal cleaner internal combustion cars now you know it's to eliminate gasoline cars to give people a real alternative so that they aren't having to pay a gas premium because as you point or out or imply there are people who have absolutely no choice about how many miles they drive in a day they absolutely have to drive from out county to get to where the work is um so yeah i think people are very concerned about putting the squeeze on people who can't afford it and the other side of that argument is what is not being factored into uh, into that equation is the cost of inaction 
and we are starting to see the cost of inaction. We're losing a Sierra. I don't think anybody can argue that we're not. No, it's not only climate change, but there's not going to be any impact that's going to knock on the door and say, hey, I was brought to you 100% by climate change. It's always going to be an accelerator, something that makes something that existed more egregious or more um, harmful or, or causes more human suffering than what it would have caused or what it caused before. Miriam. Yeah. I've read that there's harm to birds with the wind turbines and to some of the tortoises in the desert with the solar panels. What can you say about that? There has um, there has been a tendency of some urban thinkers to think, well, that's the desert. That's desolate. We can fill that up with solar collectors. But there's also a lot of, um, in the, under the oh, Obama administration, I believe, for example, in California, they they charted the whole of our desert areas to create, and that was done very much in conjunction with um, wildlife biologists and environmental organizations that are concerned about species conservation so that there could be more, so that it wouldn't be haphazard, so that a developer wouldn't just be able to say, uh, you know, I got a good deal on this piece of land, and so this is where I want to put a, you know, a solar farm, but so that there, there would be a planning process behind it where there were areas that people had pre-screened to be more apt and less likely to to hurt the desert tortoise. I don't think that they've eliminated that concern. Um, And the desert is going to mean a lot more to some people than it does to others. People out in the desert often feel like, why don't you fill up your rooftops first and then build stuff out in the desert? That's a really legitimate uh, conversation to have. Um, but I do think that there's pretty much solid agreement that the electricity system has to stop putting new carbon into the atmosphere one way or another. And smart people should get together and think about whether we've maximized everything in the on urban rooftops. Clearly, we haven't. Um, and whether we're doing desert solar in the smartest way with respect to wind, um, that was an that was a bigger concern earlier. We, you've probably seen the really old wind towers. They had a lattice work. Like birds thought, oh, that's a great place to build a nest. They don't put, put them on, they don't put turbines on those, you know, attractive um, towers anymore. The blades spin a lot slower than they used to. There is an effort to keep the wind, um, you know, the new wind farms out of migration corridors. They still do kill some birds. The people who build them say they kill a lot fewer birds. I believe this is true than domesticated cats <laughs> do. Um, but again, it's an area where there's been a lot of collaboration because a lot of the people who want wind are the same people who don't really want to kill birds. And they have been collaborating for a long time. I don't know the current status of it, but I know that we're not where we were in the 1980s and the 1990s. There's been a lot of progress since then. Actually, I have one more question that I've wanted to ask for a long time. We put in solar panels on our roof several years ago, and we know nothing about maintaining them or what we're actually, how much they're actually producing. Can you say anything about that or who we could contact to find out? Is it accessible? Can you get up there? Um, I don't know. Um, so I, I think that, um, that you can get like a 5% or 6 or 7% boost if they're clean over when they're dirty. And I recently saw something really cool because, um, there's a lot of agro solar. People are, are, um, experimenting with, um, having them be higher off the ground and grazing animals underneath in some places where climate change is already making it too hot to grow crops that um, people were used to growing. Um, they're looking at shading and gr- actually growing r- crops under. Um, and so for that, all that to say that there are combines that are being retrofitted to go with agrosolar. And I saw a combine that was retrofitted with a rotating brush and it was going down the line and it was brushing clean a line of solar collectors. It was a really cool video. Um, I think so. I think it's helpful to have it clean. I don't think it takes a huge ding from it. There are starting to be companies that will come and do um, like a checkup on your solar system. And they will tell you, like, are there any cells that are not producing? Are you getting out of it what you should be getting out of it? Um, Do I know anything else about it? 
the new systems that get, um, you know, installed, they put an app on your phone because people want to know now, right? They've gotten used to seeing everything that will show them like, oh, I'm producing X amount right now. But people who were more um, forward looking and installed their systems earlier, early adopters often don't have that app technology. So you're more reliant on a services company. Could you send information to Avi to send to me so I can look into that? Yeah, sure. like the sure. service service sector. Yeah. How to get it clean so it produces better. I clean mine, but mine are accessible. I don't know if yours are accessible. No, no, no. And my husband and I are not handy at all. So I, I <laughs> do want to a- say, Miriam, that later, in, meaning in the first half of 2022, the green team will. I do. We do plan on span- sponsoring a talk about home solar. Oh, great! Yeah. So that's on that's it's not on the calendar, but it is on the agenda. Right. Because because we all have questions about it. you who has solar has questions. I who do not yet have solar have questions. They're talking about changing the tax law. You know, what are the implications of all this? So there's a lot of information that those of us who are not solar experts would like to have and need um, to have. Alan, so going back to the oil and gas. Um, so the changes that are being contemplated in California and locally, um, would reduce production in the state. Um, do you have a sense of what the impact would be at a global scale in terms of what percentage of oil and gas is produced within California? What percentage of the U.S. versus or what percentage of global production? I meant to look up the percent of global production and and that's a good question because it's a commodity, but I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, Something that's interesting about our oil is that despite the fact that United States oil production has skyrocketed and in fact, we've become an, a net exporter, um, California, that doesn't really affect California's oil situation that much because we're not connected to their pipeline systems for the most part. Our oil comes from like this thing shows comes from California or from Alaska, or it comes in um, from by, by boat, by, by tanker. Um, And a little bit of it, like I think maybe 3% comes in from rail. And it was Bakersfield that that built a rail terminal, I think most recently, but um, we're not connected to all the controversial pipelines that we hear about. Um, which are connected to the newly fracked, um, you know, the Permian Basin and the Eagle Ferd, and then, of course, North Dakota. And the Gulf. And the Gulf. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. Gulf, of course. Right. So um, the other thing you'd mentioned. Well, I said the, fracked. So, oh, yeah, I don't know that Gulf. But anyway, go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah, but the, those are the big sources of domestic production. So the yeah. Gulf and then uh, the domestic the terrestrial sources. Um, in terms of the energy intensity associated with extracting the oil. Um, you talked about some of the thicker, heavier, sour crude um, in California that requires steam and more treatment. Um, is there a comparison of how uh, the, the energy consumption associated with that sort of extraction versus the energy consumption of bringing oil over from the other side of the world? Yes. As a matter of fact, that's why I made that map in the first place. And that's what this column is right here. So you can see that the very uh, most, and and we should say that like, I think most of the carbon from crude oil and gasoline comes when we combust it and burn it as its final product. But it is also important to look at, I mean, the atmosphere doesn't care, you know, is it being released into the atmosphere during the production or the refining or the burning? I just want to put out there that the burning of it is it does is larger than these numbers, um, but you can see the very uh, most carbon intensive is what we get from Canada. Thirty one. This is grams of carbon dioxide equivalent per megajoule of energy contained in the raw fuel. And um, interestingly, some of the very, very least uh, I said this in my last talk because we were closer to the spill in Orange County. Some of the very lowest carbon um, oil that we get is what's offshore and what was leaking out of that pipeline. It's like 1.5 or between 1.5 and 3. Yeah, here it says U.S. offshore um, outer continental shelf, 1.5 to 8. 
So this is like uh, seven times or, you know, multiple times more than that. Um, why, why is the, the Canadian oil so um, energy intensive? Is it thicker or is that because of fracking? It's because it you ha- it's for a very similar reason to why um, the California oil in the Midway Sunset Field is so it, so carbon intensive. It's like this stuff right here in our biggest, most prolific field. It's because we you have to burn a fuel, usually up in Canada. It's also natural gas to create steam to heat the stuff up to get it to come out of the ground. It, so it's it's, it's just it's slu- tar. It's, it's just sludgier oil. Yeah, I think this is it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but yeah, they have actually a couple of different processes there. They have in situ removal. Alan might know about this. And then there's another uh, process. It's not all the same as you may know, since we're talking about nature and geology, every single field is different. And that's why we need engineers, uh, you know, to be able to figure out how to get stuff out. Um, but yeah, uh, Canadian oil is extremely carbon intensive oil. That's another reason why people are against it. But some California oil is quite clean, like here in Ventura, that this is coated yellow around Ventura because this is relatively, um, it's, it's not very carbon intensive oil at all. And up here in Santa Maria either. And what's this field right here in Los Angeles? Fullerton, Anaheim, these uh, Beverly Hills actually, uh, five grams, five grams. So compared to 30 from Canada compared to. Eight. So it kind of argues for local production as opposed to importing as much as we are. What What is local? Well, um, because this would also be, this is where we get most of it in California. That, and and if, if we just said local, then that would probably include that too, right? Yeah, true. But some of it is, some of it must flow, you know, when you drill into it. And I think that this other stuff that, in these um, most prolific fields doesn't flow when you just drill it. Miriam, you're muted still. Um, I've chanced on some webinars about Native Americans in North Dakota and Canada fighting the oil. Is this related to the tar sands? I don't think I should speak about that. I don't think I know enough about it. All I do know is that very often pipelines run through aquifers and, um, you know, in places where people feel like they've been protecting their source of water forever, in the case of Native Americans, um, you know, they just, there's a lot of spills. There are a lot of pipeline ruptures. And up in that part of the country, something that's rather fresh in their uh, memory is a rupture in the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. <laughs> I guess it's not that close, but um, sorry about coughing. I forgot about the microphone. Um, and uh, that was pretty bad. They're still cleaning that up. And it's, I think it's been a decade since then. So, Nobody can tell you our pipeline is guaranteed against rupture. Um, so I, I think I, that's the ones who call themselves water keepers. I think that that's the main concern. Oh, that it gets into the water. Yeah. That the pipelines often run through the water source, hmm. like because pipelines have to go underneath rivers and, and through um, groundwater basins. Hmm. Because there, there's an intensive fight going on with Native Americans and in Canada that it's it's hurting their rice fields, their their native lands, their sacred lands. Is that near the tar sands? Uh, some of it is. Is it in Alberta? I the person I that you have know. who comes tech next might really want to talk about that. And I'd be happy to talk about it if I knew. I just no, don't know. Okay. But if you prompt her or him, you know, let them know you want to know that. Maybe they'll study up or maybe they already know. Right. Okay. I, I could get the information for that because I've chanced on some webinars and some activism about it. Yeah, yeah. I have a question just about the visual of all of those oil rigs right next to each other so you yeah. said that the the actual well might go in different directions so are those all underground going in different directions or is it the issue that 
you know, you can only bring up as much per hour or whatever as the the diameter of the bore. And so having more of them going into the same well just brings up more oil. It's just odd to me. It looks odd to me that there are multiple wells all go, which would at least superficially look like they're all going into the same oil field. Sometimes it's different depths. That's one thing in these real, this really super early thing in the 1880s or around 1900, what I've been told, I don't know if this is true uniformly. It could be what Alan said that they're different depths is that they were pretty shallow. So in some cases they were very shallow. Um, so th- there's a couple of things that could be going on. One could be that these have different owners. So I want to get what's in that pool before you get what's in that pool. Um, or um, like we were talking about that the, with different geology, um, we used to be you, one reason for close spacing of wells in the past um, would be if that oil formation underground was what they call tight sands. Um, in that case, you at, in the old days, older days before fracking, you needed to have many, many wells in order to be because the formation was very tight and it wouldn't allow you to suck up a lot of oil with a single straw. But when fracking was developed, that was part of the beauty of it was that from one bore, you could, um, you know, fracture rock in many directions and then free up the product to flow into your, um, into your line and no longer be confined to that really close spacing. But I don't know if either one of those reasons is the reason why these are so close together, but I do agree with you. They're remarkably close together in all the ones I've seen of LA. They seem, even these are kind of close together, but on the other hand that, yeah, that one in Beverly Hills, I think was drilled many years later. I'm not certain about that, but I think, uh, let's see if we can get a date on that. Um, wasn't that like in the 1960s? Do you know how, how long that one has been near where you are? The one right outside of Beverly Hills. There's also the one that was on the high school grounds, too, in Beverly Hills High School, which right. I, think, I think has been shut down. Um, oh, I meant to tell you guys that you can get the whole record for this. Um, you click on this and then it says uh, the well record. That's what you look for. And um, it used to be I could just click on it and see the well record just like that. Drew, you know, look down and you've, you'll see the drawings the engineers made in the 1930s. Now you have to request it, but you can you can just request it and they will e- email it to you. Um, and you will be able to see what year it was drilled, which if you have any concern about a facility, it's nice to know what year's technology was in use um, at the time. It'll also tell you what type of protective stuff is on there. Like, is there a blowout preventer and is there a shutoff valve at the bottom of the well? Um, like at Aliso Canyon, there wasn't. And that's why that uh, blowout, which was gas, not oil. Um, it was gas that was being stored in a former oil formation. Um, that's why it was so disastrous is because there was not a very common piece of equipment at the bottom of the well that would have been able to shut it off. Um I have another question, which um, you should feel free to answer just as a journalist in terms of what you know. Um, I'm sure I don't have the facts of this right, but in that thing of how many people on the city council uh, are on record as being in favor of limitation on drilling, it is my understanding that one of those people is not Paul Koretz, in whose district that oil well is. And do you know anything about that or why that is in terms of what, what's, what's on the record? The only thing that not my reporting at all, just reading other people's reporting, I have heard him say, we're going to be sued. And, um, you know, California regulatory authorities get, uh, sued all the time. And, you know, that's why we have clean vehicle standards and stuff is because the air resources board has been like, sue us. We, we read the statute. We think we can do it. Go ahead and sue us. Um, I've, I've read that his position, I think, you know, I could be wrong about this, but no, I'm pretty sure it was Paul Corrett said, um, you know, I, I don't want to be on the other side of the people I'm going to have to be on the other side of. And uh, we could lose this. Sorry, we, I, we meaning I, the city well, of Los Angeles. If we act we and if we do the this. the city of Los Angeles. Yes, the city of Los Angeles, we're obviously going to be sued and um, not clear what the outcome of that is going to be. So I know very little about it. And I know very little about city politics in general. 
you know, I, I, that's really not my area, but I think that I've read that that's, um, council member Corris's position. And I think there, and I think there will be more on that in the next session that we have about the, again, the, the one that we're planning hopefully for January about our, our local. I mean, that's a challenging issue, right? So if you're seizing property without just compensation, that's constitution says you can't do that. So um, the city would have to do something to make them whole. Well, I don't know what the issue is. I don't know if it's seizing property or just saying uh, wells can't drill. So uh, obviously a complicated issue that we need more information. Well, if you shut down existing production, then you are definitely taking something away from somebody who is currently deriving revenue. That's why I was try to, um, you know, remind people of the difference between saying no new wells, that can also definitely be argued that it's a taking of property, but it's even more obvious when you are closing down something that's currently producing. But it's not, um, you know, there are refineries closing and there, I think I'm not an expert on the trend, but there, there is already, there are oil companies that have said we're leaving California. There are fields that have been sold and people have left. I've had people tell me that the the expertise for a lot of stuff like plugging wells has moved away because the industry has been in decline for a long time. Um, Some refineries are switching to biofuels. So if they did do it, we might look back in hindsight and say, oh, yeah, that was part of something that was happening. It might not run counter to trend. Still, I will be very surprised if it happens. Any other questions? All right. I'd like to wrap up. And I want to say, uh, yay, Lobet, Ingrid Lobet, thank you very much for uh, sharing all this material and educating us. It's really great. I learned a lot. Um, It sounds like Alan knew a lot beforehand. I hope he learned something also, learned something new. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And um, and uh, uh, sorry, we had a small turnout in person. We're usually we'll have about 10 times as many people listening to the podcast. Uh, so it does have legs. So thanks a lot, everyone, for coming. And uh, keep your eye on Temple Betham Green Team mailings for uh, what's going to happen in January. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.